let's talk science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Welcome back to the podcast. I am Marco. Today's guest on the show is Professor Trudy Dehu. Trudy is Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Groningen. Her fascinating research interests include the classification issue in science, the neurobiological turn in psychology, the commercialization of medicines testing, and also the standardizing power of experimental research over healthcare. If you want to find out more about Trudy, then please check the show notes of this episode right below the SoundCloud player. There you can find links to her website, her books, her TED Talk, and many other great articles that Trudy recommended during this episode, such as the one by Keith Thomas titled, What are Universities for? During the interview, we talk about the new university movement in the Netherlands. To set the stage for the interview, let me shortly recap the events of the past months. In February, a group of students and protesters operating under the name The New University had occupied the Humanities Building of the University of Amsterdam and protest against planned funding cuts. The day after the police successfully evicted several dozen protesters from the building, a mass rally of students took place in the heart of Amsterdam. The New University movement demands greater democratization of higher education and transparency of finances. Hundreds of internationally renowned scholars responded to the events in an open letter. They expressed their sympathy for the students' demands and their challenge to the, quote, ongoing financialization that is increasingly coming to dominate academic life. Many teachers and university researchers across the country have expressed support for the protests. Many discuss ways to challenge the kinds of market-driven reforms pursued in the UK and try to develop alternative visions for the role of universities in society. Today, Yanis joined me to sit down with Trudy and talk about the student movement, neoliberalism, her latest book, and what academia was like in the 80s. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. This is MindWise. First of all, thank you for sitting down with us. Oh, thank you We've for been having me. <laughs> forward to this conversation. I guess a lot of people have heard your name at this university, but some students might be unable to link your name with certain research areas. Oh, sure, yeah. So on paper, you're a professor mm. of history and theory of science. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about this label? Would you describe yourself as, oh, as that, that? That's a very good question. <laughs> These days I call myself, when I talk to journalists, etc., then theory and history of psychology is far too narrow. So I tell them I'm a sociologist and historian of science. And then a couple of years ago, um, the former uh, professor who was on this chair and who kind of created this job for me, he's very old now, he sent my me an email telling me, what are you doing? You're calling yourself a, <laughs> a sociologist and historian of science in the press. 
you are a professor in theory and history of psychology. <laughs> <laughs> he is far in his 80s now. He told me I was too arrogant. <laughs> <laughs> then some of your lectures, you introduce yourself with psychologists and psychiatrists uh, study people. Mm. I study psychologists and psychiatrists. Yeah. Is that or a <laughs> description of your work that you are comfortable with? Uh, yeah, I do that because when you say I'm a sociologist of science, people go like, what? Um, and I study science, it's difficult for them too. And mm -hmm. then this is a little joke because they immediately understand, well, psychologists and psychiatrists may act as if they are not people. They are the ones who study people. Mm. So, mm -hmm. and you know, when you get a laugh, people are more willing to, to think and understand issue yeah. it, it works it's quicker hmm. true after finishing school you work in youth and child psychiatry yeah. and then later on made the step to academia so mm -hmm. move from practice to theory so to speak there's one phrase that stuck with me that i heard you say several times during past discussions and you sometimes mentioned that and i think you also said that in our email exchange Back in the 80s, where content mattered more than career. So we wanted to explore this oh. a little bit. <laughs> What were the 80s like in academia? Ah. What has changed since uh -huh. then? Hmm. Well, when I, when I started to study psychology and subsequently also philosophy, we were in small groups and we, we, we together and discussed things. And I am still very grateful I had... One professor, he was actually of personality psychology, but he was interested in philosophy of science too. And I could just, you know, whenever it sprang to my mind, I would walk into his office and say, hello, can I <laughs> can we talk about this or that with, with you? And he actually would, you know, leave his desk, sit with me in, um, in comfortable chairs that were still in the offices. So there were low chairs with low tables and we would sit together and he would help me think well <laughs> try that now mm -hmm. no, <laughs> there no were no time anymore for no that. no i i read it in a book by oh, who's the author of the, the country is tired he's a he's a sociolo sociologist and he said well when i was a student I had that too. I could talk to professors. And now students, when they work in an office of a, of a professor, the student knows that the professor's thinking, oh my God, I should work at my publications. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that, that's so different. It's, well, there was pressure to perform in my time too. I remember myself as feeling very pressured, but that's kind of, you know, it's your character too, maybe. Mm -hmm. But... There also was, yeah, m more time to think things through. There was more freedom in the program. I remember myself asking, can I please, rather than do that subject, write an essay myself? And <laughs> if I asked the right professor, they would go, yeah, sure, <laughs> go mm -hmm. ahead. Oh, are you interested in this topic? Go ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, but that was also the time that there weren't as many students as there are now. And, um, yeah, it was more content than career, also for the professors. So they weren't, they weren't uh, that nervous about their production at the time. Mm -hmm. 
and weren't as forced to publish? Also? No, not that much, apparently. Mm. Otherwise, mm. I would never have had this kind, mm. the kind of training I had. So there are several mm. reasons for students not using the office hours, certainly. The constraints mm. we just mentioned, but also the attitudes have changed. Yeah. And this is maybe a nice link to your criticism on neoliberalism. Mm. Because I also remember you saying that some students in our system now might think, well, if I fail then it's my fault. Yeah. And not only my fault, but I should feel guilty for it. Mm. And, you know, other students are doing well and I'm not, so it must be my fault. Um, also, other students that don't use the office hours are doing mm. well. Um, why should I use them now? So yes. can you elaborate on, on, on this a little bit? Date from the 1990s. You know, you you have a, you have not known the world otherwise, the mm. Western world, <laughs> but I have known it otherwise, um, a bit, a bit. It's not we shouldn't exaggerate the differences, but um, when I had your age, something like a fate still existed. Things happen to you, <laughs> and mm. of course we all know that things happen to people. But we don't take that into account that much anymore. I have one, I designed myself a catchphrase for neoliberalism, which is success is a choice, and hence failure is a choice too. Mm -hmm. And now the, the latest catchphrase is success and health are a choice, and hence lack of health is a choice too. Mm -hmm. So it's your own failure when you get ill. Mm -hmm. And yeah. We we use the word depression now for everything, and with that, I'm not meaning that people have become whiners. I'm meaning that we look for the cause of unhappiness and problems in the person who has them, mm. and that's why we call them disorders. And that's why so so many such increasing numbers of people get a diagnosis because we are used to look for the causes of failure and unhappiness in individuals. We have changed from thinking in terms of a malleable or changeable society into thinking in terms of malleable or changeable individuals. And we've turned individuals uh, into responsible beings for even their own biology. Mm -hmm. in, your, in your book you say that this, what you then call biopolitics or um, lifestyle politics, mm. that this is typical for a neoliberal and a meritocratic society. Mm. So this would be different if our society would be different. There are other political systems as well. Mm -hmm. And of course meritocracy has its benefits because in the old days, it were, if you were born into the elite, you, you, know, you could flourish. And you, if you weren't, You could, for instance, never go to a university. That was for certain classes of people, not for the for the labor classes. And that changed. So it's your own talents that count now. But if you if you make that too strong, then the successful people become far too proud of themselves because they don't even see anymore that your talent is simply a gift like as the word says, it's your, it's your gift. And they become arrogant because the, those failures over there, it's their own fault. Mm -hmm. If you 
don't succeed, it is your own fault. Yeah, you it is your own merit. Yeah. And we set up an environment that especially helps the people flourish that carry certain characteristics, like extreme yeah. competitiveness, right. hmm. to sort of bring the conversation around to hmm. the recent developments in Amsterdam and throughout Europe. When it comes to the new university, still many students don't exactly know where the movement is going, mm -hmm. what we criticize, mm -hmm. what are the causes for the situation that we criticize, etc. So it seems very complex. Mm. And I think it would be very helpful also through the medium of this podcast to clarify certain situations. Mm. How did you observe the last two or three months? I was kind of happy that students uh, started to protest. Finally. <laughs> you know what's intriguing? When I entered the building this afternoon, our building, mm -hmm. there was the, the red square in front of our door, which is the signal of the students' protest. Oh. Why did you see it? Mm -hmm. I was wondering what <laughs> yeah. it is. That's the, that's the signal. It's, uh, it's like, you know, a secret signal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's spreading. And, um, well... Yeah, well, yeah, I, w I was happy, like many professors too. They, they have been expressing their disagreement and unhappiness uh, about what universities have become for quite some years now. As we will discuss next week in the seminar, I collected some articles for you that, uh, and gave you some links to a pile of books, actually, <laughs> by un university professors who try to explain what, what's going wrong. And so, yeah, it's a good thing that we now finally put this on the agenda. One of the readings you advocate the students to read is um, Frank uh, Miedema, yeah. who's one of the founders of Science and uh, Transition and the author of Science 3.0, mm -hmm. which is, on one hand, advocating more democracy, more trust mm -hmm. and a lot of changes for universities and for academia, mm -hmm. um, but it's also very um, stripping of the glamour, the naive view of mm -hmm. a scientist to make a better world. What mm -hmm. would you say is the right step to do for university, for academia in, in the future? Well, I, I certainly to a large degree agree with him. Uh, when he, for instance, argues that behind all facts there is human decision-making. And if we are hiding that, if we're simply saying, well, the fact about the brain is this or that, then we, we give, it's so undemocratic. Mm -hmm. It's like we are the spokespersons of reality. And of course, yeah, that's very glamorous if you can clean that for yourself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and scientists have done that very often. Mm. Uh, especially when they talk to larger audiences. Mm -hmm. uh, when they speak among one another, they express their doubts and they discuss their assumptions, but only in their scientific articles. And then they go outside and they say, you know, research has proven that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's simply very, very undemocratic because it happened to me the day before yesterday. I was teaching in the medical department in Nijmegen And I did my talk, and there was a psychiatrist as a discussant, and he constantly said to me, well, you know, but uh, research has proven that. 
what kind of research do you mean actually? What mm-hmm. definitions did you use? What kind of research instruments did you use? Can, can you please tell me? Because your sentence, research has proven that, makes every discussion impossible. Mm-hmm. Whereas every research project is a complex thing mm-hmm. and we can at least, we cannot for every research project always explain all the assumptions uh, behind them but we can at least admit that they are mm. there and we can allow people to ask about them yeah would you say that we can make a, a distinction there between what students criticize and what members established members of academia criticize because i guess when someone criticizes the methodologies of mm. science or the way we present our research results, though this critique is not often voiced by students. And sort of let's grant um, the new university the demands that they actually listed on their on their website, because there we see those are more focused on the financial transparency of a university. So, for example, um, greater dem- democratization of university governance, um, the halt of cutting of departments... Yeah greater financial transparency, more referendums on universities' plans, better conditions for temporary stuff, mm-hmm. and to end risky financial speculations. It's very interrelated, these, yeah. these two things. It's all it's kind of anti-capitalism, mm-hmm. for instance. It's all about m- money governs. And the students and... The protesting staff, protesting students and protesting staff. I could read it in your papers too, the papers the group has written for me. There were many, many about these kind of topics. It's also a protest against the standardization of what counts as excellence. Mm -hmm. We have a very, very limited criterion of excellence. And um, the staff is feeling uh, that and the students are feeling it too. When will you be called excellent and you will get all the favors of being an excellent person when you um, often don't think to that hard, when you simply repeat what has been taught to you? And many students feel, I have other talents I, and I have, I have my own interests and I want to do something with them. I want to be intrinsically motivated. And the same counts for the staff. We have lived under a regime that... Um, that tells us that only short articles in American journals count as scientific output. You are a star researcher if you write many of these short English language articles. Mm-hmm. I, for myself, once decided I'm throwing away taxpayers' money. Why should I write yet another article in the American Psychologist of the Journal or the Journal of the History of the Behavioral Sciences? Okay, they were quoted, not not that much, because also because I'm not an American or I'm not good enough at that. But I wanted to picture much larger pictures because I saw a kind of coherence in several elements. And you need to do that in a book. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. things were so complex that I needed to do it in Dutch. And I got an immense readership when I did it. But the the people who judged me at the university then told me I'm worthless. So because they have this limited definition of excellence, and that's only my example. Mm. The entire departments of the humanities have this problem. I'm kind of a humanities figure here in a 
psychology department. Psychology and psychology objectivity is doing experiments or surveys. I do other things. So I'm the I'm the representative of the humanities here. Mm-hmm. And that's why especially staff from the humanities department started to protest. So and students. So isn't but isn't that very remote from from this um, criticism of the financial decisions or the um, the actions of a university while our definition of excellence or how we measure excellence and our university rankings and how um, universities in international competition are looking for themselves might be the bigger picture, the bigger problem, Like, or to say it is a societal problem, this Pressure. It is a societal problem, but I see, really see them as interrelated because what started to count as excellent was also very technological. Uh, that's why the biomedical sciences, and I, I, I agree they should exist, but all the money went there. And mm-hmm. it's all technological. Um, thinking in terms of depressions, depression and disorders, uh, looking for the causes of unhappiness in the person who has them is also technological. So it's a technological kind of society that expects the expects both income and happiness from you know changing individu- mm-hmm. individuals it's a capi- it's all part of a capitalistic society also mm-hmm. and that's why students chose that word rendementsdenken uh, which is kind of like uh, uh, thinking in terms money-wise or thinking in terms of efficacy. And they have been scorned for that because, mm. well, um, you can also use that word in in different ways. And, of course, there's nothing against efficacy per se. Why, why should we do things in ways that are unnecessarily expensive? But on the other hand, <laughs> the word also... I. Th- I think it's not that bad that they use this word. Uh, maybe they should have defined it, rendements, uh, think, meaning this or that. And there was a debate about some of the labels that they used in the mm. beginning, and I read today online mm. that um, the spokesperson of the new university actually said, well, we're actually not just for a new or open university, mm-hmm. we're for a new and open society, right. so please don't associate us mm. only with the wish to speak up for an open or new university. Right. Society isn't open and we, we were discussing this idea of um, that researchers boast too much about their results you know like um, research has proven that but it's people in society who want researchers to, mm-hmm. do, to do that mm-hmm. so there is a terrible dilemma as soon as they stop doing that many people will go like oh yeah uh Research is simply yet another story. Yeah, we're wasting and our tax money yeah, if yeah. science can't if prove no anything. Truth. Yeah. yeah, if there's no truth. There was once a, a chairperson of a committee that had to investigate a particular disease in the Netherlands, which was Q fever. You get it from goats, and people get very, very ill. And so the chairperson was on TV and was being interviewed in our main news program about what are your your conclusions of the committee, and he couldn't give definite conclusions. Mm-hmm. And he was treated like, like a no-no, whereas I was admiring him. He was explaining how very complex it is to do this kind of research. The journalist should have 
uh, thoughts along with him and ask more questions rather than just, okay, well, if you don't know anything. So hmm. it's a two-sided sword. It's the researchers who are... The most popular researchers make this mistake of um, um, using the too simple view of science in society, but they are feeding it too. But the journalists should be educated as well. Mm. I think about the individual student who starts his or her bachelor in this academic environment mm. and hears all this information. What do you think is the first essential step to take as a student who says, I'm kind of interested in this. It's very complex. I don't really know where to start. Mm. I want to support a movement if it's worth supporting. But what should I do? Do you have an advice for this individual student? <laughs> well, yeah, first, first be very interested, of course. And ask what's, what is behind the facts. And ask your teachers. Ask different questions to your teachers rather than ask questions about what will the exam be like, you know. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the only question you often yeah. get. <laughs> mm. What can we do as students? Mm. Well, what you are doing, you know. It's, it's like doing minor small things. It's, this is your initiative. It's your own initiative. And in, in about 20 years, this can be a time document, a historical <laughs> document. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you could have used your time to get, you know, to... To, to do yet another subject that is yes. the study guide or, or um, something else. Yes. And, and not yeah. everybody should start to make podcasts. Yeah. But this is yeah. your idea and yeah. you're doing it because you want to do it, because you're mm -hmm. interested. The Utrecht students invited me over, the protesting students, and they were in the library and they, they had a room there and they really were very, very interested in 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 the positive side, in how to move forward. And they had very intellectual statements and very, 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 very good discussions. Um, interested in philosophy-like questions, philosophy of science, in thinking positively about what a good university should be, etc. Mm -hmm. And they were smart. It's a supermarket research what is being served to us right now. That's what students are protesting against. They don't want supermarket facts anymore. Ready-made, wrapped in plastic, etc. And the staff doesn't want to serve supermarket food anymore. It seems like this is what a student is supposed to be, to reflect, yeah. to think, yeah. to investigate. Yeah, well, you know, but if you, if you um, make sure all the students are anxious about their future, <laughs> uh, if you make them fear their future, you make it impossible for them to really be interested. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm, I really dislike professors saying to, to the honors students, I know they do it, you know, when the honors program starts. You are the leaders of the future. You have a big responsibility. And you have to get high grades. And I'm thinking, why are you using this terrible neoliberal language to these, you know, they're, they're very young and they're sitting here and they get mm. such a responsibility. And what kind of responsibility? To get high grades? You can also give them a speech. I know you are very motivated. Uh, you are interested and... Please feel, feel free to think things through. And if you have an idea, come over to us and we, we mm. can think about realizing it in our courses, etc., etc. 
that's so different mm. than speed up, get through our program. Mm. And, well, one message there often mm. is the, the job, job market, market is, is tough. Uh, it's very, very tough. Uh, for and the next 10 years, there are no jobs. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think, by the way, that this, it is true, the job mm. market is tough. And that's one of the one of the positive sides of that is that students start revolting for better better mm -hmm. education because in the previous ten years everybody was, you know, running to a career and getting rich, etc. People knew they could realize that. And that's why they went for it. Hmm. And now they know mm -hmm. it's not that easy. So and first it has to get worse before it gets <laughs> <Yeah>. better. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. now they want to read read books, maybe because mm. they're not that much in a hurry anymore to to mm. graduate. You yourself decided to not publish in English anymore, not publish mm. in English Anglo-Saxon mm -hmm. uh, journals anymore. And you now get a lot of credit for it. You mm. have a big readership. You have a lot of awards for your books. You got the Royal Band. You have a big position also in this mm. university. I think. You I don't know in this university. I doubt it. <laughs> you doubt it? <laughs> yeah, that, I doubt it. The <laughs> annoying <laughs> metacritical itch. <laughs> well, you know, this university knows now, like other university, the, the social climate has changed, and universities are, are being asked, what, what, you know, what do we? Why do we put tax money in you? And then they are happy. They have some people who who talk to those outside. <laughs> <over there. Yeah. laughs> um, but let me say first that. I still think, I do think it is very necessary for uh, researchers to have their own journals and to have their own niches and to be allowed to write in English and to talk only to one another because that's how expertise develops. It's a matter of balance. And the topics I was writing about, I was in this community of people who study science, and there's so much smart work out there. But nobody else is aware of it, because we only talk to one another. Mm -hmm. And that started to worry me. And um, I also noticed that in the Netherlands, the journalists were very backwards, um, as compared... Uh, um, when it comes to my kind of topics, which at the time was depression, anti-depression, uh, uh, antidepressants, um, brain research, etc. The journalists in the United States and partly also in Germany were much more well informed. Mm -hmm. And that's because um, they weren't being served in their own language in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. So, And I had a couple of articles and you know, even one stu stupid article in Dutch, I was immediately phoned by like 20 journalists. <laughs> <laughs> and then a publishing house, a non-academic publishing house, asked me on the basis of these articles. And I knew, oh, this is career killing. It's not mm -hmm. an academic publishing house. But it was Augustus at the time. It has now been absorbed by Atlas. Contacts, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> Augustus was a very elitist with the best novelists, and I was so flattered because they mm. liked my sentences. 
they invited me over a conversation and they had a pile of my articles and they had they highlighted the sentences they found beautiful and these were exactly the sentences I found beautiful as well <laughs> <laughs> so I was dancing on the streets in Amsterdam when I left that publishing house <laughs> I was so happy but it was violating all the written and yes. unwritten laws of academia yeah it was and um, I was very nervous about it mm-hmm. and that. are you happy you made the choice yeah today? absolutely I'm very happy I'm you know I think a person should be allowed to discover discover his or her talents and uh, that what you are good at. And I'm good at this and one should do the things one is good at. If, hopefully, other pe- it's useful to other people too. So I mm-hmm. would have been very, very unhappy if I would have worked for years on a book and nobody would read it. Mm-hmm. But you said <laughs> you get something from the... from that it helps other people. Do you sometimes also regret that you didn't publish in English where it might have a much bigger readership? I regret it um, because I have uh, lots of very interesting colleagues, uh, international colleagues who can't read my stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and you can say, well, then do both. But that's extremely complex first of all because my topics are so very complex and because me not being an American not not being a British person um, that does cost you readership mm-hmm. how can I ever compete with a person like Nicholas Rose everybody reads Nicholas Rose mm-hmm. and maybe in England I would sell like 200 copies But here I sell thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a pity that I can't do everything. But certainly <laughs> But the, the, the benefits out, outweigh oh, the, the negatives. Because I think those examples are very important. Yeah, us. but young re- for young research, this is even more di- difficult. I started doing it, I think I was about 55 when I, mm. you know, 10 more years to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's so many more topics we would like to discuss. If we could do this every mm-hmm. second week or once a week, that we come around for half an hour, mm. we would like <laughs> that very fun. much. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Every single podcast, we would like to wrap up with a personal question. Ah. And so <laughs> one of the personal questions, and they're sometimes fun, and you don't have to answer them. You can <laughs> you can be elaborate as you want. But here it comes. What advice would you give the 20-year-old Trudy? <laughs> oh, back to the 20-year-old Trudy. Oh, to be more self-confident, of course, hmm. you know. Um. A second question. I know your books are all on objectivity and there is no such thing as objectivity, mm-hmm. but what for you is success? Oh, yeah. When you when you can find that what you're good at and happy with and you do it and you you are rewarded uh, by other people's responses that's mm. you know that's the best that can happen to you i think and i think that's a good way to finish mm. up this podcast okay i will link to all the articles that we've mentioned today in the show notes of this podcast i will link to the names we've mentioned okay. to their books we'll link to your <laughs> articles and books well, and also to some of the articles that you sent us that were part of this document of next week's seminar so the interested student can follow up on that and read it 
thank you for tuning in and we hope to see you soon with Trudy, hopefully again <laughs> with Trudy. Yeah, thanks for doing this again. Oh, thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. This podcast was a production of Mindwise through the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto. Let's talk science! I don't know what I'm doing.